Last week we ended really kind of in the midst of 34 through 36 of Matthew 23. We didn't quite finish all of the, the idea and the purpose of 34 through 36, and that connects to verses 37 through 39. So this morning I'm going to begin by reading verses 34 down to 39, and then we'll get started. Remember, this is the Lord Jesus in the midst of speaking to the Pharisees, woe unto them. He's pronouncing condemnation and judgment for their sin against God and his people. And this is in the midst of that. Um, Let's back up to verse 29 to give you full context. Get your minds rolling here, okay? Verse 29. Jesus spoke. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, Jesus said. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you see, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord Jesus has been very, very specific about the context of the life of the Pharisees. They are whitewashed tombs. They have marked themselves out as something to look very pretty on the outside, but on the inside they are like dead men's bones. They stink. They're rotting. They're decaying. And there is no life in them. In the context of that, the Lord Jesus has said very, very, very bluntly, you are exactly like your forefathers. And to prove that you are like your forefathers, I will give this prophecy to you. Woe unto you for what you have already done. Woe unto you for what you are now doing. But woe unto you for what you will do. And here is the prophecy he gives to them in verse 34. Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. 
Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Of these last several messages, we've seen that Jesus grieved over the coming judgment of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was number one. Verses 13 to 36 in an overarching sense. Number two, Jesus preached against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was verses 13 to 36 in an overarching sense. But now it becomes even more specific. Number three this morning and the main overheading point. Jesus prophesied regarding the future sinful actions of the Pharisees and Jerusalem. Jesus prophesied regarding the future sinful actions of the Pharisees and Jerusalem. We have to note here in verse 34, letter A, they are notified of a future generation of preachers from God. They are notified of a future generation of preachers from God. It's interesting here that the Lord Jesus gives a context to what's going to happen in the future, and it's very specific in its sense. He's saying there will be prophets. There will be wise men. There will be scribes, those who know the book of God well, those who speak it publicly. There will be those who think through it. You will have those who will prophesy from my word my truth. This notification is an interesting thought. When Jesus said, I am sending you prophets, well, we have to recognize that this had to be another thing that mounted up in their minds as to saying, who does he think he is to say that he can send prophets? Only God calls and sends prophets. One writer says, It fits the context to understand Jesus as speaking in God's name and identifying himself with God's continuing activity. God has sent messenger after messenger and they have consistently been rejected. As as the Pharisees well know, Jesus is saying that God will continue to do this even though their rejection at the hands of this present generation is as certain as it was with their predecessors in earlier days. Jesus is saying, first of all, I'm going to send them. I'm the one who's doing this in the context that I'm the very Son of God. I am aligning myself with the purpose of God. God the Father's purpose is to send these prophets to you. It is my purpose to send these prophets to you. These purposes are not two. They are one and the same. It's also a context to say, you know what? It is very certain. It is very certain that just as your forefathers killed the prophets and shed the blood of the prophets, you will do the same. You now say to me that you would not be like your forefathers. But I'm telling you, you are the same. You are the same. We have to recognize here the importance of Jesus being able to join his voice with the purpose and the voice of God the Father. And in joining his purpose and his voice to that, he's noting not only his oneness with the Father in the idea of the purpose itself, but he's noting his ability to be able to say, this is what will happen. 
Think about it for a moment. The Lord Jesus is able to tell these men, I'm telling you of your sins of the past, your sins of the present, and I'm also telling you of your sins of the future. We need to recognize, ladies and gentlemen, this morning as we come and we worship the one true living God, you're just not dealing with a God who knows your sins of the past and the present, but he knows your sins of the future. You need, you and I need to bow before him humbly, thinking rightly about who he is. He's not just someone that has some idea of the past or can give a context to the present. He knows all things at all times. Well, that leads us into letter B. Not only are they notified of these future prophets and preachers, but they are condemned as a future generation of prophet slayers. They are condemned as a future generation of prophet slayers. He tells them, I'm going to send them. This is a promise. I'm giving you promise and prophecy of what will be done. And not only will I send them, but you will kill and crucify some of them. And some of them you will scourge and persecute. And you'll do it from city to city. If you want to know this prophecy coming into reality, the book of Acts gives us a great understanding of that, doesn't it? It shows us in multiple places how God's apostles, his preachers, how they were persecuted. And eventually some of them were killed. Even Stephen himself, we see it from the very early portion of the book of Acts. Here's a man preaching to who? The Pharisees. And interestingly enough, who's one of those in the crowd? Paul himself, who would be a future apostle. The book of Acts records these things very thoughtfully to give us a context to see that the Lord Jesus' words came true. The prophecy he made at this moment, at this time, standing in this place in the temple, preaching to these men, those prophecies, they came true. And that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did. He's noting that they will be judged and condemned according to the blood of all of them. That's interesting, isn't it? He's saying, you need to think about the line that you come from. And he's not just speaking of the line of, of the prophets of their forefathers. He's saying, you come from the line of Adam. You're walking in the same line of Adam. You're walking in that same line of Cain. And he notes Cain to them, right? He says, you need to understand, Cain is the one that killed Abel. And you're walking in the line of Cain and not in the line of Abel. He's making that line of demarcation between a believer and an unbeliever. And he's saying to the Pharisees, who are religious leaders of the day, you are not believers in the Messiah. He's saying to them pointedly, understand that the temple building and the temple functioning has become more important than the actual Messiah. You need to know that although there was some veil of the Messiah in the Old Covenant, it was not completely veiled. 
there was enough information and enough understanding in the Old Covenant that the Messiah was spoken of plainly. This is why the New Testament becomes so important to us is because the New Testament writers are pulling forward all of this Old Testament context to show us this is what the plan always was. Jesus was always the temple. He was always the tabernacle. All of that other stuff was just a type. It was a shadow. So therefore, you Pharisees and scribes, you will be judged. You will be condemned. You will be condemned in the long line of Cain. You will be condemned in the long line of your forefathers who did not listen to the word of God. You will be condemned in past shed blood, present shed blood, and future shed blood. Some of that to them in the moment is even more near future. The Lord Jesus himself will be some of, in the context of that future shed blood. Matthew 27, verse 31. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of Jesus and put, on, put his own garments on their back. And they led him away to crucify him. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was crucified and his blood was shed by this same group. The same group that's speaking here in this moment and, and calling Jesus out as one who you can't be the Son of God. Who do you think you are? And he's saying, No, 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 let me tell you what you will do. And sure enough, they did it. And they not only did it in the context of the group themselves, but they gathered a large group of listeners to shout with them, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We have to ask ourselves a question. Are we in the line of Cain? Are we in the line of Abel? Another representation of the future shed blood is Peter. John chapter 21, verse 18. Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, the Lord Jesus spoke this to him. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death that Peter would glorify God. And when he said this to him, he looked at Peter and said, follow me, follow me. It gives us an indication of why Paul's conversion is so incredible. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, and then he was the one who was called on the road to Damascus. And after he's called, he spends years preparing to go and preach and once he goes and he begins the ministry with Barnabas and then subsequently leaves Barnabas from every city he goes to, city to city, the book of Acts accounts that he is persecuted. He is literally just pressed out of town. Sometimes he's stoned and he's left for dead. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, Paul says, 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And we pass over verses like that, especially as American Christians, and we think little of it. And we think somehow, somehow, because Paul went through it, that means that no other Christian should ever go through any persecution. And that we can take over things and make it not happen. It's just not the real world. There are Christians all over the world today who face persecution every single day. The number of known persecution of Christians on the continent of Africa is growing by the day to the thousands. Information coming out of China shows that that persecution of Christians is ongoing in China day to day to day, and the number grows. Some are just tossed out of buildings and they can't worship. Others are put into prison. Some church buildings are literally crushed to the ground by local officials. Some people are whisked off to prison camps and never heard from again. All because they proclaim the name of Christ. If Paul went through this type of persecution, serious persecution, even before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we certainly have to have some context that all persecution will not be over until after the second coming of Christ. That will be the full and final condemnation. So we must know that there's a line of demarcation. Are you in the line of Cain? Are you in the line of Abel? And if you're in the line of Abel, you will see persecution. In every place, the persecution will not be the same. It will not be in the like manner of all. But it will be difficult, and at times it will be hard. Let her see this morning. They are denounced as the ones who further the decline of Jerusalem. They are denounced as the ones who further the decline of Jerusalem. We have to recognize that when Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, See the context. In one sense, it's, the, it's the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these scribes. They have been called out in previous verses. And now the Lord says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Number one, Jerusalem represented God's special city for his special people. Jerusalem represented God's special city for his special people. It is God who appointed Jerusalem as a governing central civil city. It is God who appointed Jerusalem as a governing central civil city. As one writer says, this address closes with a lament over Jerusalem. The last words Jesus addresses to the crowds in this gospel. The city is the one that was chosen long ago as the place where the temple of God should be built. And that should be the center of government for the people of God. It was a representative city. 
This was the place that God's people were to come. The temple was to be there. The temple was this place of worship that the sacrifices could be offered, that these things were recognized in proper order, and that in Jerusalem there would be a a governing work being done. This was to be the city of God's people. God was to rule and reign among His people in a way to show them who He is and for them to commune with Him. We have to see that the Lord Jesus is calling Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because he's not only now dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he's dealing with the whole context of who Israel is. When he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's speaking of this whole context. People, you're not listening to the words of the prophets about the Messiah. He has been promised, and He is here. And you have not listened. Not only was Jerusalem a centralized governing city, but God appointed Jerusalem as the place for His temple worship. God appointed Jerusalem as the place for his temple worship. Psalm 137.5 If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The psalmist gave this context to Jerusalem because it's the place of temple worship appointed by God himself. God chose in Jerusalem, in the temple, to reveal himself to the people. It was the place that the presence of God was to be known. That most special presence of God that only by way of sacrifice and proper prescribed worship of God could one man enter the temple and go before God safely. And if he had not done all as the high priest or the temple priest, if he had not done all of that which God had ordered. You know why the books of, uh, of, of the early portions of the law and why the books of Leviticus become so important? Because we see how God presi- prescribed so specifically how he was to be worshipped so that people could see, this is who I am. I am a God of order. And when I tell you something, you need to listen. And when those things weren't put together just as God had ordered them, that priest would die right there. You all know the the history of the tying of the rope to the leg of the priest. You all know the context of that. This would be like a father looking at his children and saying, hey, stop monkeying around. Stop all that monkeying around and goofing off. You don't know what you're playing with. But sadly, over decades, over hundreds of years, even millennia, the temple had become a relic and an icon in and of itself. 
But the actual idea of the presence of God was no longer important to the people of Israel. And so Jesus Christ, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He lumps the whole of the people in with these Sadducees and Pharisees and says, you're the ones who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. We think of this special revelation of God to meet with his people in his presence to be in that temple and for him then to remove himself from that because over decades and decades the sin of the people that what the people did instead of being upset that the presence of God was removed from the temple they just kept the temple up and the temple was everything even so much so that the temple that Jesus and the apostles, or excuse me, the disciples would be looking at here in, in the opening of verse 24, the temple that Jesus has been dealing with in the context of throwing the money changers out, this was a temple that was revitalized by Rome. This was a temple that had been rebuilt in, in more of a, a Roman context, in, in the beauty of marble, and everybody would look at the temple as a relic. And Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, that you would want the presence of God more than you want a temple of stone. How many times? How many times? Have we looked at the context of something and worshipped the context of it rather than the Messiah? Not only did Jerusalem represent the, the temple, but Jerusalem represented, number two, the people that God cared for through his son. Number two, Jerusalem represented the people that God cared for through his son. Notice in verse 37 how often... I wanted to gather your children together. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I, don't, I haven't had a lot of chickens in life, but, uh, you know, fish a lot and around the lake and things like that. Love to see the ducks and the ducklings, you know. And those little mamas, they want to get those little ducklings going in the right direction because uh, if they don't, you know, keep up with mama, bad things can happen. There's large fish in the lake, and they like to eat little ducklings. And so mama's trying to keep them all in the right direction. She's trying to make sure they're all going in the right place. I just tear some small children's worlds up. Um, bad things happen. This is why your parents' children, they want you to stay with them. This is why parents don't want you hopping out of the car and running through the parking lot. Why? Bad things can happen. You can step out in front of a moving Mack truck. It's not good. Little person, Mack truck, not good. Jesus is saying, look, I wanted to gather you like that. I wanted to keep you with me. I wanted you to follow me and walk with me. These were the people that he cared for. When you're reading the Old Testament, go through and notice 
how many times God talks about caring for his people. Now, now think just a moment. Let's just take an instance of the people in the wilderness. And they needed something to eat. Who's the one that provided the food for them to eat? They needed a way to be guided. Who was the one that provided a way that they could be guided? By God's special gift of the pillar of fire. Who was it when David was on the run that would provide for David and his men? Who was it that when they were going to enter into the land that had been promised to them, but the land was filled with great warring tribes and factions, who was it that provided a way for them to be able to inherit the land? Even though some said, we can't do it. Who was it? Jesus is saying all along, I've been the one. The very Son of God, the Messiah. Although I was not incarnate and, and here on this earth, I, I, I've been the one. One with the Father. One with the Spirit. We, we, we've worked the three persons of the Trinity. One true living God in three persons. But even though Jesus wanted to guard them, Jesus is saying, I watched. I watched the rebellious chicks seek to kill all those who warned them of doom. It's a little bit of a graphic picture if you think about it for a moment. In one sense, he's saying they're little chicks. You ever seen you know, these little bitty chicks? They don't look like they could harm anything, right? They're just little bitty fluffy things. You know, they kind of, they toddle around and they peck at stuff and, you know, they make peeping noises and all those kinds of things. They, they don't look like they, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No, no, you've been rebellious chicks. And you've sought to kill all those who warned you, who warned you of what it meant to sin against God. There have been previous prophets who were slain by Israel and its leaders. And now Jesus is saying there's present and future wise men who will be slain and persecuted as well. And he's crying out to Jerusalem and saying, you, you will do it. It's a caution to us, isn't it? To be very careful and very thoughtful. To first of all, be the one to look at God's word and listen. And to be a doer of his word. It's also a call for us to be very careful in who and what we condemn. Sometimes things are very plain. 
person or an entity or a group that denies the deity of Christ, well, that needs to be condemned. Seems like so many times, though, we're a lot better at condemnation and splitting and dividing than we are in gathering. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm trying to gather my people. I'm trying to gather them. This is why it's so sad to see churches divide amongst each other. To have things that really don't matter in the end or things that could be worked out. To have those things divide a whole church. How many times have churches split over pieces of minutiae? that didn't matter. It's one thing to leave over the doctrine of salvation, whether God is sovereign or salvation. It's one thing to leave over that. It's another thing to to have all these divisions in things that don't really matter at the end of the day. A pastor friend years ago pastored a church. They literally had a church squabble that lasted a year and a half over the color of the carpet that they were going to put in the church building. And after they finally decided, almost half the church left because they didn't get the color of the carpet they wanted. It reminds us of the importance of peace among the people of God being focused on the very Messiah and the person of God. Number three, Jerusalem, including the temple, represented chastisement and barrenness. Jerusalem, including the temple, represented chastisement and barrenness. Jesus is calling out and saying, Jerusalem, including the temple, you will be left barren with little family ties. Once again, this is about that doctrine of adoption. This is about Jesus calling his people his people, and those who are not, they're not his people. He's talking about those who will be brought into his family. They'll be brought out of the family of the devil and brought into the family of God. And he's saying, these are going to be my people. And is this really what you want, Jerusalem? Is the last little bit of family tie you have to the the sovereign God of the world is that you would look at this relic of the temple and that would be what you have? This stone building, this edifice, this thing that could be smashed in a heartbeat according to the power of God at any time or any moment He wanted? Is that what you want to hold on to? Not only would they... They'd be left with little family ties, be left barren without the presence of God. They would be left barren without the presence of God. It was not that God was stuck in the tabernacle. It was not that God was stuck in the Holy of Holies. We know He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, simultaneously, all the time, all those things. We understand what the Scripture teaches about God's presence. But there are times He reveals Himself in very special ways. God had been gracious to reveal Himself to His people. 
And God had long ago removed himself from that temple. And now he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, do you want to just walk away from the very presence of God? He's saying, don't you see that you're walking in the context of the presence of God as I am the Messiah? I am his one and only son? In one sense, as believers, we look back and read some of this and say, wow, wouldn't it really have been very, very neat to have actually seen the Lord Jesus in person? To have walked with him and talked with him? To have had a meal with him? And yet these who Jesus calls out are saying, we don't want that. We want to tell you that we will deny you and we are going to kill you. Because you are destroying the way of life that we like and the way of doing things that we like. And we want the power and we want the prestige and we want the ability to manipulate people and do what we want to do our way. And Jesus said, well, you'll be left barren without the presence of God. They will be left barren in their rebelliousness and rejection of God. It's just not that God's presence is withdrawn. It's that they're left in their rebelliousness. The positive and the negative. We, we try to teach our children that all consequences have a negative context and a positive context. We don't just use the word consequence only in the negative. It can be positive as well. But here, the positive is, has a double negative to it. The presence, of, the presence of God is withdrawn in its revelatory sense. And they are left in their rebelliousness. Here's the Lord Jesus saying to them in verse 38, your house is being left desolate to you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Fine. Your house is being left desolate to you. The whole of its context, Jerusalem, and specifically even the temple. You can have the temple. But it will do you no good before the one living holy God. It teaches us three things that I want to leave you with this morning. Number one, the standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His word is paramount. The standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His word is paramount. I think one of the greatest struggles that we have as believers is to recognize God's word is not just a little book that helps us along the way 
It is the very guiding truth that God has left to his people. And if we neglect its truth, there will be consequences. It gives us a context to know what God wants that pleases him. It begs the question, is that really your goal today? Is to leave this place asking, how do I please the Lord? Do you leave here today asking, what am I going to do tomorrow to please the Lord? Is that my goal? Is that my desire? Is to please the Lord? The Lord God, one true and living God? Then the word of God is paramount. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees had come to a place that the actual word of God, even that which was prophesied to them, that was not important. They had devised their own plan. When individual Christians or groups of Christians and churches, when we gather and if we start devising our own plans, you will see the reason why that group will have Ichabod written on it. It says something to us as the church, a local church. We are representative here in this local body of the kingdom. Here we are in its greatest representation. Jesus tabernacling among us that the spirit of God would literally change souls and we would walk with the Lord God through regeneration and sanctification. His word is paramount to us as individuals and how we would please God and how we would live our lives each and every day. The scripture helps us to regulate what we do in our homes. How are you going to lead your home? How are you going to teach your children? What will you do and not do in your home? The the scripture teaches us how we will worship in the church. What is it that worship is? What is it about? How do we do it to please God? What do we do in worship and what do we not do in worship? Scripture is paramount as we live in the world in the context of even the political realm, the social realm. How do we socially involve ourselves in the culture? We do it according to the Scripture, thoughtfully and carefully. We must ignore the plea from the world that we can be Christians in our homes and then we have to leave it in our homes. We have to ignore that. But we also have to think through if we're going to ignore what they're saying to us. We have to think through, if I'm going to ignore it, how will I ignore it? And it's the scripture that helps us to understand how we live in that culture. Number two, the standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His son is supreme. The standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His word is paramount. The standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His son is supreme. The Messiah was always the point. 
If we understand the covenant, the Messiah was always the point. From the very sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and the context of it in Genesis chapter 3 and what would come about, we were in need of a seed that was promised. And that seed that was promised, it comes through the covenantal line all the way until the very Lord Jesus is born. Over these next few Sundays, we'll spend time singing these hymns of the Incarnation. Sunday the 17th, I'll do a a sermon from the Old Testament in the context of the Incarnation. Uh, And then Sunday the 24th, Scott will preach a sermon on the Incarnation from the New Testament. We'll have the context of that. But all of that is covenantal. That was all promised. It was all about the Messiah coming. All along, the Son has been supreme. The reference to the rejecting of the chief cornerstone is saying what held the temple up the whole time was the Messiah. The promise of the coming Messiah was what made the temple even useful. Other than that, it was just a building with a lot of ritual rites going on. The presence of God dwelling among among His people, that presence in its context was about the supremeness of the Messiah, the very Son. Only the Son could live the life and die the death. Only the Son could take the place and be the actual sacrifice. Only the Son could do those things. Only the Son could represent all that God required. Only the Son. They were to look to the Messiah to come. And now He's among them. And He's being rejected. But the standard has not changed today. Have you noticed, sadly, what happens in a lot of the evangelical American world is we're trying to change Jesus. We're trying to twist God's word to change who Jesus is instead of dealing with the fact that the Bible plainly tells us who he is. Can Jesus forgive sin? Yes. But because he can forgive sin doesn't mean that sin is allowable. Can the worst sexual sinner ever be forgiven? Yes! But they can't be forgiven and then say, I I can just continue on in my sin without a problem. And others gather around them and say, we're Christians, we love you, just keep doing what you're doing. No! We have to teach them who Christ is. He's the very Son of God. We have to say He can take whatever your tendency is, whatever your inclination is, and He can deal with that. But when you sin, you are in need of repentance and faith in Christ alone and asking for forgiveness that you would turn from that sin, whatever it is. If you are inclined to being a liar, then you need forgiveness of your sin and you need to turn from it and you need to stop seeking to lie. Who is the one that's going to deal with that? But the chief cornerstone, the Son is supreme. 
And it's the way it's always been in the kingdom of God. Thirdly and lastly, the standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His plan is invincible. The standard is the same for God's kingdom today. His plan is invincible. Jesus is pointedly, pointedly saying to these religious leaders and now even crying out to the whole of Jerusalem, don't you see? Don't you see? You cannot escape God. Don't you see you cannot escape his plan and his purpose? And if you want to keep heading in that direction that you're going, which is in rebellion, then I tell you, here is what you will do. You will go down this road so far that you say you are a lover of the law, but you will be the one committing murder. <laughs> I want you to get the picture now. All these religious leaders saying, we uphold the law. We, 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 we uphold the law. And Jesus is now saying to them, you know what? You think you uphold the law, but you're walking this road of rebellion and you're going to become the murderer. And there's almost, almost nothing worse We could quantify it to some degree, but really there's just nothing worse than being a murderer of a creature that God made in his own image. And he says, you will walk in this way. And even though you do it, you will not destroy my plan. I'm often brought to this fact in reading the Bible. I'm amazed at the thousands of years that have gone by and all the truth that God has spoken and how much of it has been shown to be true even in small snippets like the 50 years I've been on this earth. By God's grace, he has allowed me to understand his word enough that I can see how amazing it is that nobody is thwarting God's plan. Nobody is overcoming him. No one is going to overthrow him. All the things that he says, they're true, and they continue to show themselves to be true, and it's obvious when you read it through the lens of the Scripture and the Spirit of God deals with your soul. But you can't expect unbelievers to see that. You and I as believers, those of you who are repentant believers today, you need to be encouraged. This is a crazy world we live in. I mean, it's just nuts. The chaos, the ridiculousness, the stuff that goes on in modern first world countries. You can't switch your gender. Just basic biology says it. But we live in a world 
You can just do anything you want. I'll be a cloud today. I think I'm going to climb on the church building and be a cloud. Y'all watch me float. How long do you think that'll last? That craziness is going on around us. It's happening all the time. The shifting sand. All those buildings are crumbling and they don't even know it. They think they're building something and all the while it's falling. And what's happening? God's plan's being worked out. Purposefully, thoughtfully, in every single detail and all along the way, just like Scott told us this morning in Bible study, all the craziness of, of these theologians that deny who God is and then God saves one of them. And he becomes one of the greatest theologians of the 18th century leading into the 19th century. Blah! Only God can do that. His plan is invincible. He will not be thwarted. Don't give your praise to another. Don't look around this world and start, Oh no, what's going to happen? Don't do it. Take the word of God for real. It's paramount. Read who the Son is as the reigning king of all things and know His plan's invincible. Trust in Him. Not yourselves, not your employer, not anything else. Trust in Him. Seek His Word to think rightly about how to live in this world of chaos. And when you seek His Word, you'll know His Son. And when you know His Son you know the chief cornerstone. And you will stand firm through the whole of your life. And as you gather with this body of believers or maybe another somewhere else you live, you will be a part of the kingdom of God, the very church of God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're merciful to us that we could spend time in your word. Lord, will you give us hearts and minds to read it more even this week? Better yet, Lord, please, will you prick our hearts and minds that this afternoon we'll read your word. Spend some time in it instead of doing something else. Lord, don't, don't let us look at the news on our phones today until we've spent some time in your word. Don't, don't let some news agency drive our mind today, Lord, please. Give us time in your word that we would have peace in our minds and our hearts to trust in you no matter what's happening in this world. That we would gain wisdom and knowledge and understanding of how to live in this world. Lord, even in this small congregation of your church, would you in some way, somehow, use us to be a light, to be a city on a hill? Lord, help us not to be squashed 
but strengthen us. Help us not to be defeated, but give us courage. We are in need of you working in us by the power of your spirit according to the truth of your son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.